Welcome to The Follow-Up, a weekly podcast that goes in-depth into projects recently reviewed on Brand New, featuring conversations with the designers and sometimes their clients, uncovering the context, background, and design decisions behind the work. Hi, this is Armin Bitt, and welcome to episode 44 of The Follow-Up. This week, we're following up on Gage and Tolner, an oyster and chop house restaurant in downtown Brooklyn, New York, that was originally founded in 1879. It operated for over a century, and after passing through several owners, the restaurant closed its doors in 2004. In 2014, Chef Zoe Kim and restaurateurs Ben Schneider and Sinjin Frisell partnered to start a crowdfunding campaign to revive the restaurant, raising more than $484,000, and in 2016, they began work on it. Set to reopen in 2020, its grand reopening was shut down literally days before, as New York Dining shut down for the pandemic. The restaurant stayed active through takeout orders and late last year was able to finally, properly reopen. The project, designed by New York, New York-based order, was posted on brand new on October 7, 2021. You can pull it up on your browser at bit.ly slash bmpodcast044, that is bit.ly slash bmpodcast044, all in lowercase. This week, we are joined by Hamish Smythe, co-founder of Standards and partner at Order, and Sinjin Frisell, partner at Gage & Toner. In this conversation, we learn about the origin of Gage & Toner, not just as the restaurant that started in 1879, but as its revival and how an unexpected visit to its landmark Brooklyn location while searching for a space to start a cocktail bar inspired the founders to instead focus on bringing this iconic restaurant back to life. From there, Sinjin and Hamish take us down the historical rabbit hole they gleefully went into for both the identity and the menu thanks to a treasure trove of Gage and Tolner ephemera found at the Brooklyn Historical Society. And, if like us, you enjoy far too many details about typography, stick around for Hamish's masterclass in how to revive and pay homage to a font designed and patented in the late 1800s. Now, Let's listen in as Bryony follows up with Hamish and Sinjin. In the kitchen, we often look back into what has been in order to inform new dishes and recipes. In the same way, there are times when it is appropriate for designers to look back and load their toolbox with what has been in order to create a brand that takes us forward while honoring its foundation. Today, we will be getting the backstory on the future story of Gage and Tolner. Hamish, Sinjin, welcome to the follow-up. Thanks for having us. This is very exciting. Thanks for having us, Bryony. Good to be here again. All right, well, let's jump right in. Sinjin, could you take me back to that moment when you and your partner started talking about re-establishing Gage and Tolner, from the why behind the idea to the why then and why you? The story begins in downtown Brooklyn, where my partner, uh, Ben Schneider, and I were looking around for a space to open a small cocktail bar that would become the Sunken Harbor Club, which we can get to in a second. We looked at some spaces that we were not very excited about, and the realtor, perhaps out of desperation, said, I've got one more thing I can show you. It's not really what you're looking for, but it's interesting. She led us through downtown Brooklyn, and I realized that we were walking across Fulton Street towards the facade of Gage and Tolner, one of the most famous 
restaurants in Brooklyn history. And I looked at Ben and I said, is she taking us into Gage and Tolner right now? <laughs> we had heard the legends of this restaurant and I had peeked my head in a few times when it was a clothing store just to see what was left of the magnificent interior that the restaurant was famous for, but had no idea that the space was available or that the landlords were looking for someone to reestablish it as a restaurant. Sure enough, she got the keys and we walked in the door and I saw Gage and Tolner really for the first time vacant and empty with all of its interior and magnificence in place, dusty and in need of a little TLC, but still intact. From that point on, I think we just became obsessed with resurrecting this restaurant. Serendipity, you know, when somebody absolutely changes the course of what you had planned, in this case, a real estate agent. I think it would be helpful for our listeners to get a better sense of what that historical relevance that you're speaking of this restaurant in the history of Brooklyn means for the industry. Right. It opened in 1879. It closed in 2004. So it was open for 125 years. The interior space was landmarked in the 1970s. It was very well known for this really ornate Victorian interior. The main focus point of the room is these gas and electric chandeliers. There are 13 of them that run down the center of the room. It's a really uh, unique design. It was known for the longevity of the servers that worked there who wore these beautiful black formal uniforms and wore on their sleeves insignia that designated how long they had worked there. A bar marking a year, a star five years, and an eagle 25 years. And there were some people that worked there that wore two eagles on their sleeves. To me, it was just such a grand and beautiful space. I've always said that New Yorkers, because we live in small houses that don't really match the magnitude of the events in our lives, have to go out to restaurants to celebrate them because they're in a bigger space around a lot of people. That kind of matches the feeling that you have when you're celebrating something like a 50th wedding anniversary. Gage and Toner definitely fits the bill there. It's been restored by my partner, Ben, and it's you know, restored to its previous magnificence and ready to greet you know, a whole new uh, generation of Brooklynites. Fascinating story. I think we can probably write two or three monographs just on the culture of the restaurant itself and that history. Hamish, at what point and kind of under what circumstances did Order get involved with the future branding of Gage and Tolner? Order became involved, I think it was halfway through 2019. So this is all pre-COVID, which we can get into. It's kind of a big part of the story. Yeah, we will. Yeah. <laughs> Cindy, did you want to get into the crowdfunding part of it? That proceeds? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it did. It preceded a uh, meeting with Hamish, I think. We had trouble getting the people that we needed on board, I should say the money that we needed on board to start this massive project. We figured it would cost about $2 million, and we were right about that. We did the thing that you typically do, which is you call the wealthiest people you know, where you get introductions to them, and you ask them to bankroll the whole thing. Well, that didn't work. We had to pivot and build some excitement about this project that would attract the money that we needed. So we decided to start this crowdfunding campaign. Now, this is regulation crowdfunding. It's making a real investment in hopes of getting a real financial reward as opposed to something like Kickstarter, where you get a tote bag or you know, something like that. The story of us launching the campaign was covered in the uh, New York Times, which really helped to kick things off. But I have to say that the first thing that I did when I was looking for advice on crowdfunding is by Alex Daly's book, The Crowd Sorceress, which ended up being, and I met with Alex as well, ended up being my Bible in this whole process and really helped me structure the fundraising. 
the things that I learned in that book directly led to the press coverage, which did so much to increase the uh, public profile of the project and did end up you know, attracting uh, the investment that we needed. Yeah, the twist is that Alex is my partner. That's how I found out about the project was through her. And she said, oh, we're working on this, working with these amazing restaurateurs and giving advice and this awesome project. I was like, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I love this kind of restaurant. It's like my favorite restaurant. And I was like, well, you know, if they ever need help, you know, with branding, like throw a name out there. And I think she did. Sinji and I were both, you know, we hadn't met, but we were both happened to be working with a business consultant named Holly Howard in New York. And she, I believe, put our name forward when Sinji was looking for a branding studio. I can't nail down all the timing, but yeah, it was sort of this couple of very kind of lucky, I guess, ways of being introduced. We sent their RFP. They had been looking, I think, for a little bit of time and we put together a proposal, went to the restaurant and met with the team and sort of got the tour. I was really, really excited about the space and, and the team and put together this proposal as you do and were lucky enough to be told that we got the job. And I was familiar with Hamish's work from the reissue of the New York City uh, Transit Authority graphics manual. When they sent the proposal in, I was really excited because here is a person that, you know, had the same ideas that I had about history, which is like I constantly turn to history for inspiration, almost like a handicap of mine. I can't really think of anything new without finding it in an old book first, you know. So this sort of appreciation for history just matched very well with what we were doing at Asian Dolan. I think we mentioned even in our proposal was that we're not the go-to restaurant branding studio in New York or anything like that, if there even is one. But restaurant design is not our bread and butter. Sorry, I did not mean that as a pun, but it's not our go-to thing. We've worked on a few bars and restaurants, but we were upfront about that. And we said, but that's not what we do, but we really are into history. That's part of our process. And you guys are just oozing history. And so it would be really fun to work on it. And I think we're upfront and honest in our proposal, and I think it struck a chord with the team. Yeah, certainly. I'm starting to see that this whole project is kind of like a domino effect of people knowing the right person mentioning the things at the right time kind of thing. And so it'll be interesting to see how it continues to evolve throughout our conversation. Now, in terms of the branding foundation, what was the first line of thinking with your team, Hamish? And what kind of guidance did you get other than let's look at the history? The first thing, it was obvious to us that doing some sort of revival was going to be at least an option that we had to explore, right? You would be kind of crazy not to do that. And I kind of knew in the back of my head that doing a revival was probably the right way to go. But I'd also remembered saying to Sinjin up front that I think, you know, a revival is probably on the cards here. But I said, we should also look at what does Gage and Tona look like if it's completely new? you know, rebranded for the 21st century. So upfront, I'd sort of committed to showing multiple directions. I think from Sinjin and the team, there was no direction from them other than this promise that they have this amazing archive. There really wasn't any kind of, we'd love to see this kind of thing from the team. Um, they really let us do what we wanted, which was great. You know, sometimes you want a little bit of direction, but in this case, we didn't need it. We had all of this sort of historical context to work from. I can speak to that context a little bit. Yeah, we basically took a huge Google Drive uh, folder and just dropped it on Hamish's lap and said, here you go. <laughs> it was um, the result of research on my part. First of all, I was shocked when we first started to think about reopening the restaurant. I instantly went to find the Gage and Tolner book because a restaurant has been open for 125 years. Surely someone has written a cookbook or some kind of a historical uh, text about it. 
that book didn't exist. It may still exist someday, but nowadays restaurants will write a uh, cookbook in year two. I mean, this place was open forever and there was very little out there. It was mentioned in a few cookbooks. I think they reached a peak in about 1956 or so when they were celebrating their 75th anniversary. And they were in a lot of press then and cookbooks would uh, compile uh, recipes from restaurants around the country. And they were in a lot of those. But I kept waiting to hit gold digging through the library. And then finally, I don't know why I didn't go here first, but I went to the Brooklyn Historical Society, which is a beautiful landmark building in its own right. And it turns out that they had just been donated 13 boxes of ephemera from the Dewey family who ran the restaurant from 1919 to about 1989, so for about uh, 70 years. The matriarch of the family, Trudy Dewey, had just passed away, and her children were donating all of the collection of Gajan Tolner stuff that they had to the historical society. I was the first person to go through the boxes, and it's just a treasure trove of stuff going back to, I think the earliest piece of ephemera they had was from 1909, Hamish, that oyster box cover. It would be like a to-go box, like a cardboard box, and it had the Gajan Tolner logo on it. And then from there on, from 1919 on, we have photographs of the staff, every press clipping, even down to like seating chart for private dinners. I mean, it was like so much information. And we got to see the evolution of the logo over time and how they treated it. Just an absolute treasure trove of stuff. It was a treasure trove and it was kind of overwhelming. It was kind of endless and it was very well organized into categories like menus, catalogs, advertisements, interior photos. Somebody, I'm guessing, kind of went through and did that for us. But even still, it was just really overwhelming as to the volume of stuff there was. And then also from a design point of view, there wasn't a clearly one identity that they had. They had changed it a lot over the years. And the sort of one that we revived, which is set in art gothic, which we can get into, that was on that original oyster box from, I believe, pre-1909. That was sort of what we said was, okay, if you go right back, this is the earliest original printed logo that we have. But if you look at some of the photos they have, the original gold lettering on the facade was this completely different looking thing. Very Victorian. It had sort of a curly N, I think, that went up into a, almost like a spiral. Um, and it had these triangle decorative elements. It was very arts and crafts, Victorian, uh, you know, I'm mixing up stuff here, but it was really wacky. It was kind of cool, but we only sort of saw that in a couple of occasions. I actually think they tried to bring it back at one point, like in the 70s or 80s. That original window logo didn't show up too much. It looked like after it was put on that window. So we sort of considered the 1909 oyster box as sort of the source material for the art gothic direction that we went down. The archive boxes were just, you know, a fantastic thing to work from. And as Sinju said earlier, our history with republishing manuals and other design systems or collections has really influenced our work. And just getting a project that allows you to do that was just rubbing our hands together with so much to work with. I'm also very, you know, similar to Sinjin. I love when I have historic things to work from. Coming up with something new from that is where I find design to be really interesting taking the past, filtering out what was working and what wasn't, and bringing it all together. Yeah, it was a kind of a messy past they had. They had a lot of identities over the years and a lot of, I think, freelance people working on it. Plus, just I think people at the restaurant probably working out things and literally, you know, typewritering out flyers or things like that. And some of it was really good, some of it was really bad. And there was a complete mix of styles and everything. So, 
you know, it was one of those things where there wasn't this amazing, beautifully designed identity that we could revive from 1909. We really had to go back and sort of cherry pick what we wanted to take from it. That's the beauty of the project, right? If it was too easy, it would have been boring. In a span of 125 years, you are going to find a lot of different identities and approaches. Yeah, you're right. It would be amazing and weird if it was sort of buttoned up completely. I kind of wonder, Sinjin, what would have happened if you had actually gone to the Brooklyn Historical Society on day one and they had nothing? Honestly, I've thought about this. I really don't know. I mean, some other things have come out since walking in that room, like we found an attic that we didn't know existed where we found some more ephemera. But I mean, the research from that room in the Brooklyn Historical Society really formed the foundation of everything. I mean, the food analog to what Hamish is talking about, the restaurant, even in its early days, had a nostalgic quality to it, to the diners that went there. When you read a review of Gage and Tolner in 1920, they're talking about how going to Gage and Tolner is like stepping back in time, honestly, because the restaurant was pretty much unchanged from 18, well, 1892 is when they relocated to the location where they are now. Isn't that wild to think about that? Even in the 19-teens, going to Gage and Tolner was a nostalgic experience where you could experience the gay 90s again. And the menu was pretty much unchanged, believe it or not, from 1919 to about 1988 when Edna Lewis was hired and the restaurant changed ownership. For all that time, they made only minor changes to the venues. In the 1970s, when you went there, it was this multi-page menu with hundreds of items, including things like egg salad sandwiches and omelet for some reason, and four types of Welsh rabbit. They were proudly serving food that was popular 100 years earlier, even you know as late as the 1970s. And again, it gives us a lot to work with. So using the menu, we picked a few of the more popular items that keep kind of showing up in magazine articles and stuff, like the hash browned uh, potatoes in cream. Now, when you find a recipe for this in a magazine, it's basically potatoes mashed with, they used like a coffee can to mash up some boiled potatoes and then heated them up on like a sizzle plate with cream, salt and pepper, and nothing else. <laughs> that was the dish. We would ask ourselves, okay, now this dish was extremely popular. We want to honor that on the menu. What does it look like in 2020? And now the technique is more complicated, but the result is still kind of thrilling for a hash brown potato. You know, I think the processes we were using were really similar. I'd love to add that I also have a, a slight obsession with the 1800s and especially New York history like many people, but it is like a time machine when you go in there. I mean, it was even before renovation due to its landmarked interior. One of my favorite books is Time and Again by Jack Finney, in which the character Simon, I think everyone calls him Cy in the book, goes back in time to, I believe, the 1880s or 90s in New York. The book was written in the 70s, and so they call it the 90s. So I love that idea that people, you know, even in the 70s were calling the 1890s the 90s. To have this restaurant set back then and used to imagine the people in there was kind of amazing. So as you jumped in, you're sifting through the boxes for all of the design elements and Sinjin, you're sifting through the boxes for all of the food and recipe related items. Hamish, earlier you mentioned that it was necessary to look into two routes of the design, the historical based one and a reinvention. Did you actually go ahead and present these two options? Or was it tabled right from the very beginning through conversations that just the revival was necessary? We did actually go through and present two options. It was very much one of those design presentations where I was like, please do not select direction two, um, which, <laughs> which was the second one. We actually put the one we wanted first, which is 
you know, what does everyone do? They put the favorite one last. So I was trying to play mind tricks. No, it's not true. <laughs> the research in the beginning of the presentation just made sense to go right into the historic revival. And then we said, well, you could also revive it. The second one wasn't making it look like a modern restaurant. It was still very much a historical looking thing. And I went back and looked at the presentation today and we had borrowed a typeface that we'd found on an old menu and brought that to the forefront for the word mark. So it was still, I guess, a historically based direction, but it sort of didn't take that logo that had been used quite a lot. The first direction we presented was the Gothic one. That was really what we wanted. And Sinjin, when you looked at these two routes at the very beginning, what was your first reaction? Well, I have to say, first of all, that when I got the presentation, we were stunned. I mean, we had never seen anything like this. You know, not having worked with a design firm like Order before, I was caught a little bit off guard by the complexity of the presentation, how much of the process was shown. Being able to see the process was just so fascinating to me. The presentation was, how many slides was it, Hamish? 210. Right. That's not a big one. <laughs> that's just <laughs> two routes. Yeah, that's not too extreme, but still. <laughs> anyway, we were blown away. And honestly, Hamish, I don't even remember the second you know, design that you uh, presented because the first one was just a home run for us. It was honoring the past, and yet it was so clean and modern at the same time. It also, in a sort of roundabout way, evoked sort of this mid-century heyday of the restaurant, which is also something that we you know, wanted to consciously honor. Just on all fronts, it just seemed like it was absolutely the right fit for what we were doing. So we need to geek out a little bit. Hamish, all things typography here for a minute or 10. There's obviously all the historical context that is your launching pad, but I'm really interested in the process from reworking Art Gothic and then pairing it with Divine Standard and Proto-Grotesque. What was that process for you and the rest of your team? Yeah, for sure. Let's get into it. So really where we began in identifying Art Gothic as sort of where the route to go down was actually Gage and Tolna had Instagrammed a slide with four or five of the restaurant's logos that had been used you know, over the years. I think at the top was the Art Gothic one and then beneath it was some later ones that they'd used. One in the same typeface that Stranger Things is in is included from their 80s logo, which is just so out of context and like, who did that? But that was in there. And then one had a gas lantern next to it. Somebody tried to do a sort of revival, I guess, late on, probably when it was too late. They had put that on their Instagram and they said, which branding do you like the best? And somebody or most people had said, got to use that first one, you know, the top one, the top one, which was Art Gothic. And so we put that in our presentation as sort of as a build up to make our case. And that's sort of how we present a lot of our work is present some things almost like a legal team might do if the legal team was like a bunch of idiots who, who like drew letters and stuff. But, we, you know, we try to cherry pick a few things. We kind of nailed that down like, okay, that's right, we're going to go down. Then we went into all of the archival material we had and sort of tried to identify when and where Art Gothic was used. And we found even within that, they had used multiple variations of the typeface over the years. We immediately had this problem where we said, okay, we want to use Art Gothic, but there's like seven or eight variations even the restaurants used. Then we went online and looked at what Art Gothic typefaces were available. There are many. A lot of them aren't very good. They're sort of like free fonts and stuff like that. One or two of them were well-drawn, professionally released typefaces. But Art Gothic was a Victorian era typeface and the originals were probably woodcut or metal cut and sort of long gone and not really digitized early on, I think. Digitized renditions that we had took a lot of liberty, I think, in how they drew it. 
So what we did was we were able to find the patent for the first art gothic typeface from the US patent office. We put that in our presentation as well. It was patented on May 5th, 1887. That fit into the timeline of the restaurant. You know, they opened before that, but they had moved to the new space by then. And probably a few years after that, started using Art Gothic on their packaging and things like that. Things from a timeline point of view worked out. You know, having gotten that typeface patterns are cool because they display, obviously, the typeface. We were then able to match that with the digital versions available. And the closest match was from HIH Foundry, and it was digitized 2007 from the uh, Hamilton Wood type number 232 for the type people out there. You can look it up. (laughs) And it has a really funky set of characters, but it really closely matched that original pattern. And it matched the original box pretty well, too. That's sort of how we nailed that down. However, Once we sort of typed out the words gauge and toner in that typeface, it was good, but it wasn't quite right. And we sort of adjusted what we could, put that into our presentation. But I told Sinjin, I said, you know, if you go with this direction, we'll make it better. And by that, I mean, bring in a professional type designer. We did that and we had Jesse Reagan from XYZ type come in and sort of redraw each letter form really from scratch. And he looked at different ampersands and different ways of doing things. But we sort of settled on what we ended up with. To the eye, it looks very close to the original. It's a unique take on Art Gothic. Everyone's done because no one had the original stuff, I think. So it's fair game. In terms of pairing up the other typefaces, we were sort of borrowing from a lot of materials. Devin came about because the original menus were using, I mean, there were low res scans and stuff. It was hard to identify the actual typeface, but it was definitely a modern, as they say, serif typeface. Type people will know what I mean by that. Very thin, contrasted serif typeface with fairly high X height. And so we went out trying to find something that we liked that suited what we were going for, and we landed on Devin. And so There was some reference that we had. It was from the same type foundry as something else we were using. Sorry, I can't remember the exact reference, but it tied in nicely. Felt like the original menu. That was how we landed on that. And then finally, in the spirit of borrowing from many sources, Proto Grotesque came about because in the restaurant, Sinjin, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of the walls are paneled in this thing called Lincrusta. It's a Victorian era wall covering that was used very commonly back then. You could select from multiple pressings, I guess you would call it. And there were these amazing patterns. And so Gage and Toner has a bunch of these still in there. And I believe it's one of the most well-preserved you know, examples of this still around. There's not much left. We went and found the early catalogs for Lincrusta and we're going to try and base some design directions on that. We ended up choosing Proto because Lincrusta catalogs, they were using a sans serif typeface that was centered and had a very proto-grotesque look about it. And then I found some Gage and Tawner postcards that had, if not the same typeface, something very, very similar used along the bottom. That was enough for us to say, okay, let's sort of pair it up with a really cool looking or interesting looking sans serif. And Proto kind of has this early sans serif look to it, I felt. And I was just, I kind of love the R, uh, the alternate R that they have where it flattens out at the bottom. That's what we used as the secondaries. And there was a little bit more thought put into it than what I just said, but that was kind of where we ended up at. You definitely delivered on the goods on the geekery here. You went deep enough to satisfy that craving. I appreciate it. (laughs) Good. I think I actually got a little out of breath there. So 
<laughs> so Sinjin, as all of this is happening and Hamish and his team are obsessing over each little detail, every letter, the ampersand, all of these things, how involved are you on the day-to-day of all of these nuances? And at the same time, how much is his work influencing what you're doing within the walls of the restaurant? I remember Hamish and I having a lot of back and forth conversations. I mean, for me, it was just thrilling because here was a person that was, you know, obsessing over these old menus as much as I was. Typically, it's hard to generate that kind of enthusiasm in someone if it's not already there. I remember Hamish and I talking a lot about that stuff, talking about the ampersand too, which was something I was hung up on on the old menu. I'm not a yeah, graphic design person, but there was something about that ampersand that was just driving me nuts. <laughs> And um, I asked Hamish to address that, I remember. You know, at the same time, we were doing things like selecting the cocktail menu. We went back to the old menus. Cocktails are a really important part of any restaurant business now and kind of my specialty. And we decided to do something pretty brave there, which was to go with a menu of cocktails that all appeared on the original menu. These were cocktails that would not be out of place on a menu from 1955. There's a lot of things on our menu that weren't popular in 1955 and hadn't been for 60 years, like a sherry cobbler, definitely a drink from the 1880s, 1890s that had its heyday. And then it just was fossilized there on the menu for the next 75 years. And then, you know, talking about how to present that to customers was something that we went, you know, back and forth on a lot. You know, I was also just thrilled to have a client in the beginning who was as excited as we were. Sinjin said that we were, it's just great to have a client who's receptive to history and was excited about what we were doing from a graphic point of view. And I guess, you know, looking back, we were probably egging each other on and going harder and harder and finding more references and tweaking the ampersand to death. But it was enjoyable because we were both having fun. Before we get into better understanding timeline and whatnot, I do want to cover one more part of the design and the branding, which is the photography. You took a very unusual route, Mm -hmm. especially in this day and age of Instagram and everything being digital. Can you walk us through the reasoning and then the production of the photography? Well, we should also talk about COVID because it comes up in this story, but we had scheduled as you do when you'd nearly finished a project, we'd hired a photographer to come in and shoot all of the menus and things like that at the restaurant. And I think she was going to come in the day before the soft launch happened. I mean, Cindy would tell this story better, but the restaurant had a series, I think three or four friends and family soft launch nights right before COVID hit. I think the restaurant was supposed to open on like a Tuesday and New York City closed down on the Monday. We had to cancel our original photo shoot and kind of put it on pause just as the restaurant had to as well. Cindy, you should probably cover that in a minute. But to answer the question about photography, After sitting around waiting for the reopening to happen, I shouldn't say sitting around because, you know, the restaurant guys were working their tails off, but we were onto other projects and we sort of came back to this once the restaurant reopened and sort of was looking at the photography that had been produced by others and it was great, but it didn't, it was all digital and it didn't, I felt, capture the feeling that you have in there. You know, it's hard to put that into words, but it is this magical, historic feeling place The lighting is very unique. It's a long, narrow space, sort of naturally lit from one source at the front, but by the back, it's all artificially lit. And there's a lot of mirrors and things bounce around. There's a gold ceiling. So the lighting's a little odd. I was just not impressed. Well, everything that had come out was just too sharp. It was just too kind of perfect and digital. And so I'm a cliche designer. 
have long been into film photography, of course. I think when you graduate from design school, they give you a, a film camera and say, there you go. Good luck. My dad had a darkroom growing up, so I was always around film photography and his dad had a darkroom as well. So, I sort of said, why don't we just go there one night, have dinner early, sit in the front table where it's naturally lit and just take a bunch of film and shoot a few rolls off and just see what happens. That's basically what we did and there was a couple of months ago. Uh, we had dinner at 5.15. The order team came in. Jesse Reed, my business partner, is also a really good photographer, so he had his camera we had a digital backup, which we relied on for a couple of shots, but 99% of them turned out luckily on film. Thankfully, everything turned out, but I was sort of relieved to see that my thinking was right, that film would capture the space better than digital. And, you know, a lot of them are kind of grainy and hard to see. That's kind of the feeling you get in there, especially after some of those martinis. Everything gets a little darker and a little grainier. <laughs> exactly. It's hard to shoot your work like that on film. So we actually don't have the classic, here's the menu laid out on a flat surface sort of thing. We just have those in situ shots standing in for those studio things that a studio might usually shoot. Yeah, that makes sense. And those might still come down the pipeline. So we've made some references into COVID and the timeline of everything. And I know from this conversation that you were about to open COVID changed that, but you did go straight into takeout and eventually seated dining. Can you walk us a little bit through the overall timing from crossing that street and realizing where you were headed with a realtor to today? Sure. Crossing uh, the street with the realtor happened in April 2017. So it was a three-year-long process. The original opening date for the restaurant was scheduled to be March 15, 2020, which it turns out was not, <laughs> not the most auspicious date to open a big new restaurant in New York. The renovation took a year and a half. And the year and a half leading up to it was the crowdfunding, developing the idea, meeting with my uh, partners, Ben Schneider and uh, Sohee Kim, and creating the menu, creating the concept. And then a lot of <laughs> a year and a half of just knocking on doors and hearing no, for me, went out on the street and tried to raise this money. At the end of the day, we ended up with 300 plus crowdfunding investors and then 40 equity partners. Some restaurateurs would consider this to be too many, but at least there's not one person with an enormous influence, which really allows us, the three partners, to really govern how the business operates, which is working out great. Second week in March 2020, we had, uh, I think, three different parties for these investors because we couldn't fit them all in one room. We had a maitre d of the restaurant who is sort of the public face of the restaurant from the 70s through the 90s, a man named Wade Seiler, who is very old now. He's in his 80s, but he had a great baritone voice and would sing in the restaurant sometimes. So we found him living on Lafayette Street in Fort Green and became friends and got him to come in and sing in the uh, dining room for those parties, which was amazing. And there was a great feeling. There was a lot of excitement. And then I remember... I was just caught in the moment at the time, not really watching the news. And I remember going across the street to the Walgreens on Fulton Street because I noticed that one of the bar sinks didn't have hand soap and buying the last two bottles of hand soap on the Walgreens shelves and thinking to myself, oh, this is really something. This is actually happening. That was on probably on March 13th. We were supposed to open on a Sunday night, March 15th. And our last sort of pre-opening event was on Friday the 13th. And then on Saturday morning, my partners and I just looked at each other and said, you know, we can't do this. Yeah, this is not going to happen. Went from a staff of 60 to a staff of zero overnight. It was a wild experience. We didn't know, like everybody, we didn't know if this was going to be a couple of weeks, a few days, or how long it was going to thus begun our year in the wilderness. 
you know, we came back into the building really as a team in early 2021 and went back to Hamish and asked for his help designing our to-go packaging and started to sell these meal kits where you get a steak and sides and prepare it at home as well as Sunken Harbor Club cocktails that you could mix at home and food items from that concept as well. And that all led to our April 15, 2021 reopening, which has been going exceedingly well. Now that you have reopened and you've got a few months under your wing, can you share some of the feedback that you have received from your own employees, your customers, your crowdfunders, everybody involved? It's been a wild experience. You know, obviously, we expected the restaurant to be successful. It's exceeded our expectations. I want to talk about Hamish's photograph for a second. It was the first time that we had done a photo shoot since we had reopened, just all been such a blur. You know, the pre-opening shots that we took obviously don't capture the feeling of the space because we didn't even know what the feeling of the space was going to be at that point. Hamish's stuff, when I saw it, it instantly brought to mind the photographs that people have been showing me from their events. These anniversaries, their uh, Little League wins a uh, championship and they come to Asian Toller with the whole team for dinner. People have been digging through their photo albums and they'll come to dinner with the photographs just to show us that they were there in the 1970s and this is what it looked like. The photographs that Hamish did instantly brought those to mind and continuing this historical thread. And I instantly turned to our PR person who does our uh, social media and I said, can we do this for all of our posts now? Because this is the vibe that we want people to experience. The feedback has been great. When I'm on the floor at night, walking through the room, people will pull me over to the table and tell me when they were there last. This happens literally every night that I'm in the restaurant. There are people for whom Gage and Tolner has been an important part of their life in the past, and they expect that it will be again. This is the highest form of success, just a complete culmination of all the work that we've done. This is the feeling that we wanted. We wanted the people that are coming back to the restaurant after 30 years to feel like nothing has changed. When they notice a change, they're positive about it and grateful for it. And that's just the greatest success that we could possibly have. So I don't think there are that many restaurants anywhere in the world that can toot their own horn and say they've been through two pandemics. <laughs> it's true. It's true. In the letter that I sent out to our supporters right after we shut down, I made note of that the restaurant has survived a pandemic in the past. It survived prohibition. It survived two world wars. This is going to be no different. It's been through the trenches. It has. And so have you, as an investor, as this is your baby, you know, all of these things when you're starting a new business, you've been through the trenches in more ways than one. I'm hoping to find out, COVID and all, what has been the most satisfying part for you? I mean, honestly, working on the visual identity, the brand identity has been incredibly satisfying to me in a way I did not expect. I expected it was just a work for hire and then it gets done and then you use it. But it's been such a conversation with Hamish. It's really been a highlight of the process. But I'll say still for me, the best part about it is seeing the look on the faces of people who have been there, been to Gage and Tolner before coming back in. Some of them get teary when they walk through the door. I mean, this happens like literally every night and they're happy when they leave. <laughs> That's very important. Totally important. That has been the greatest experience, just meeting all the people for whom Gage and Toller really holds a special place in their heart. People's relationship with this restaurant gets very deep and very personal. And I'm not sure why that is. Not every restaurant achieved this, but Gage and Toller did over its lifetime. And to be able to continue that tradition, it's a great honor for the three of us to even be involved with this project. It's a part of New York City history. We're now the gardens of it. 
Well, I think you touched upon it at the very beginning when you said people used to go there for milestones. So when you go back 30 years later, you're experiencing that milestone of going on your graduation with your dad who's no longer there. There's an emotional attachment to people beyond just the space. And when you can combine a space and an experience with people in feelings, then it really becomes a whole other thing. And I think that's what you're experiencing, just that culmination of bringing all of these elements together. Yeah. At a time also when we're all a little bit extra feely, extra tender, extra everything. Yeah, like hit the nail on the head. So many people tell me that this is the first meal that they're eating inside a restaurant since early 2020. And again, I hear that every night as well. People have been saving their risk budget for this event you know, at the restaurant, which is also very humbling. And you're right. Gaijin Toner is a complicated place because it does encompass all of this human experience. You can really feel that in the room. It's this energy, it's positive. It's like a life force. It goes back literally hundreds of years at this point. Hey, Mish, for you, you went in excited looking at the historical components and the fact that it was something that you don't normally do. Restaurants, there's not mm -hmm. your bread and butter. Correct, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> it's always fun to do a little bit of the things that we don't do on the daily basis. Mm-hmm. What has been the most rewarding part of this project? From a personal point of view, I think the most rewarding was, I mean, I think you have to be careful when you're doing a historic revival, especially a place like this. If you go too far, you can kind of, I don't have a word for it, but like Disneyland, the crap out of it, so to speak. So you have to kind of temper a little bit how far you go. I'm just happy that we were able to pull that off. From a larger perspective, when COVID hit, I felt so bad for the team and I'd seen how hard they were working and training and building up to this mid-March opening. And, you know, I saw COVID coming from a long way. Sydney was just so heads down in it. I was getting very worried for the restaurant. And then when they had to announce the closing, it was just kind of devastating. But for them to be able to sort of persevere through it and get through with the takeout, and I saw how hard they worked on that. It was just amazing to be able to go in there that first time and kind of have a meal. And St. John's right, there is a jovial atmosphere in there. I think I've had dinner there three times. It's actually really hard to get a reservation. <laughs> you have to book like a month out, midnight sort of thing already. It's like that. But I believe there are bar seats available every night. So show up. To go there at dinner, it's an experience. It does have this different feeling about it than really any other restaurant that I've been to. Sort of hard to describe, but I think it's all baked into that space. As you're looking ahead, I think we can all find ourselves in a point where we're starting to lift our heads and stop looking behind us in this burden that we've been carrying. And while cautiously, we're all taking steps out and forward. What of what lies ahead is the most exciting for each of you? Well, for me, it's the opening of the uh, Sunken Harbor Club upstairs. It's a thrill for me. Sunken Harbor Club began as a weekly pop-up at my restaurant in Red Hook, Brooklyn, called Fort Defiance. It was sort of this tropical night that we would do there where we experimented with a different cocktail styles. And then to see the evolution to where it is now, the bar that we originally were planning to open in downtown Brooklyn that led to all of this is finally going to have a brick and mortar home upstairs. And I, I just you know, couldn't be more delighted. The, the drinks that are on the menu, the development that we're doing now is so thrilling. We're getting to create something totally new again. That's what got me uh, fired up right now. And you can share that same energy from downstairs and commute very quickly right. all night long. Hamish, how about for you? 
I mean, in terms of this project, it's the same answer. It's continuing this collaboration that we've kind of been having and the Sucken Harbor materials. I went back and looked recently and I looked at the logo that we had. I emailed Sinjin like, you know, I think this is like too perfect. We need to mess it up a bit, rough it up, send it out to sea. And he was like, I love that. You know, let's do it. I haven't done it yet because we're all busy, but we're going to do that. We're going to design the menus we're talking later today. That's going to be really fun. You know, we made a board game for the Sunken Harbor Club. All these like- I was going to say. Yeah. Sinji was like, I want to do bandanas, but I want them to have a board game on there. Like, can you come up with something? I'd heard of this old pirates game and I had to Google old pirate game or something, but we found it and the game is played with these like custom die that you roll and they have anchors and stuff on them. Anchor and crown, I think it's called. Yeah. Anyway, it's just like- Yeah, crown and anchor. And the board game fits on like a square. So we put that on the bandana. So- I mean, this is the thing. I can send this random email to Hamish where I'm like, I want a board game on a bandana. <laughs> I think he sent me the crown anchor idea like 20 minutes later. And I was like, yeah, solved. Yeah. I sketched it out. I was like, how about this? There's this game from like the pirate era, like from the 1600s. And he's like, perfect. Let's print it. <laughs> so <laughs> it's been stuff like that, which is just fun to do as a designer. It's fun to have a client who's enthusiastic about nerdy stuff like that as much as we are. Fantastic. I definitely think we're going to have to have a part two to this recording. <laughs> Sunken Harbor. Yeah. Once everything is out there. Maybe on location with some tiki drinks. That would be lovely. There you go. It is fascinating getting into all of the nitty gritty and seeing what you're most excited right now is this other project, which is the one that started Gage and Tolner in a way, but you went around and took a very big detour that was then put through the ringer through the pandemic, and then you are back to where you started. But now you have two locations and two different adventures to connect with, with customers. It's really interesting. And I appreciate the time that you have taken to share all of the details, the geekery and the fun parts and the not so fun part with me today. My pleasure. You're very welcome. Thank you. This podcast, the follow-up, was started at the beginning of the pandemic. And because of that, many of the projects we've covered in the 40 plus episodes have had a COVID-related story. But this one packs a particularly wrenching punch. After three years of work to get the restaurant open and a handful of soft openings, all of New York shut down literally days before the grand opening. Luckily, the partners and staff resilience to stay open through the pandemic by offering delivery and takeout options paid off more than a year later, with a grand reopening and attention this effort deserved for both the restaurant and the wonderful identity by order that benefited from today's guests' shared obsession for the history and legacy of what had come before them. Today, thanks for listening. Until next time, we'll be here. We hope you'll be there.